Welcome to Truth to Power. Ruth Newman here. I'm co-hosting today along with Doug Lowry and filling in for your regular host, Justin Mogg, who is taking some well-deserved time off. We're here today to discuss the wild, wild west of our current social media landscape. And with us to explore this topic are Barry Zelf and Victoria Strange. Both are occasional commentators here on WFMP 106.5 FM, your very own non-commercial, all-volunteer community radio station broadcasting from the Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville. Now, I'm, I'm going to just spend a little time to set the stage, so bear with me. The Trump presidency has brought to light some of the weaknesses, not only of our constitutional checks and balances, but also of that vast communications thoroughfare that we know of as social media, which by the very nature of these giant internet platforms like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, it corrals people into separate and highly polarized tribes. And somewhere along the way, tribes have taken precedence over truth as Heidi Larson, a vaccine rumor hunter, puts it, we don't have a misinformation problem, we have a trust problem. So I'm starting off the discussion with reference to an article that I found that's entitled, How to Regulate Social Media When There Is No Good Answer, by Tom Rogers, who is former senior counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives Telecommunications Subcommittee, the first president of NBC Cable, and he's currently executive chair of two digital media companies. Now, Roger proposes an independent arbitration system for policing extreme speech on social media platforms. Unlike Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, who, except for a few guidelines against hate speech, does not think major social media platforms should be, as he calls it, arbiters of truth, and unlike Jack Dorsey, who feels all those postings on Twitter, even the president of the US, must be held somewhat accountable, and it's up to Twitter to make these decisions. Unlike both of these two CEOs coming up with their own diametrically opposite answers, Rogers proposes an independent arbitration system. So just briefly, he's calling for only the large social media platforms to set up what he calls Arbitration Independent Reviews, or the acronym AIR, A-I-R, made up of trained individuals drawn from a spectrum of political views, demographics, and occupational characteristics. And these arbiters would be paid through a tax or fee imposed on these giant platforms. So you have those representing the offending post and the complainant to that post, each party choosing an arbiter from that list, and then those two arbitrators picking a third independent arbitrator. All the decisions would be rendered and posted within three days, indicating whether the content needed to be flagged or removed. Now, there's plenty more weeds to get into, which we may or may not later on, but this at least gives you an idea of Roger's attempt to bake some trust into our major internet communications highways. 
I think of this as kind of looking at it akin to installing red, green, and yellow traffic lights onto our highly trafficked roadways. So after this long introduction, which I apologize for, do any of you have any comment on this proposal in particular or in general on the issue of this rampant misinformation and lies that are coursing through our social media? Anyone want to comment? Remember the promises at the beginning of the internet? I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> that it was going to be this wonderful forum for exchanging, and it is in many ways, ideas and for actually improving, you know, access to this very democratic means of communication or so. Yes. It had so much promise and still yes. does, but yeah, I'm a little bit, I must say, overwhelmed by how to correct this. It's just metastasized over the years. Yes, Barry. So the internet is one of the many examples, the situation in which we've made for ourselves a society that doesn't suit our biology. We were evolved over millions of years to live in small tribal units in which we know every individual and we rely on every individual for our safety and health. And we get lots of cues from each individual in terms of body language, tone of voice, facial expressions, the history of their actions so that we can decide whether or not to trust them. And as an individual in a small tribe, you want to be trusted because these are the people who will be literally watching your back. Whereas on social media, on the internet, most of us are more or less anonymous. There's no accountability for anything we say and we don't have the rich context of either history with one another or with facial expressions and tone of voice and all those sorts of things that enrich human communication and allow us to validate the content of a message we're receiving from someone else. All we have is the words. And basically, the addiction capitalist model on which our social media are organized that allow them to make more and more money as we click more and more. We, there are more eyeballs on each message. They get paid per view of each message. That incentivizes making the platforms more and more addictive. Addiction is unhealthy for the addicted person, but it's very remunerative for the purveyor of the addiction. And so they, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and so on, have incrementally changed their software to make it more and more and more addictive. In terms of your question, Ruth, how do we change this? Uh -huh. There are some very simple tweaks. Really, in many cases, they're just reversals of software changes that were made 10 or 15 years ago that would increase friction, make it harder, just a little bit more difficult for you to share this outrage stoking message that you just saw. Right now, you just hit share or retweet, and there it goes to all of your followers. Whereas back in the good old days, you had to actually copy and paste it into a new message, which would take you an extra 10 seconds, which actually filters out a lot of the nonsense because you have to actually want to share that message. It's not just an, a reflex action. Another thing that they've done to make it more addictive is to add that little like button 
we all want that feedback of being liked, of being affirmed in our views. And so we try to make our posts more and more likable. Well, it turns out that the posts that get shared the most often are the ones with the most moral outrage in them. Those are the posts that undermine thoughtful political discourse, but they add more eyeballs to the platform and they make more money for Facebook and Twitter. So we need to start looking at ways to enable people to communicate, but turn down the faucet so that we're not communicating every thought the instant it comes to our head, which we don't do in person. What about any way of, aren't they at this point trying to tag things as false or what do they say? This content is disputed, which could mean it's possibly true. But, you know, they started doing that with a few of Trump's tweets toward the end mm -hmm. before they finally took the decision to ban him. But is that is that a model? I think, Tori, what you're talking about is called content moderation. And yeah. Facebook and Twitter and the other companies hire lots and lots and lots and lots of content moderators. But when you think that Facebook has well over a billion users, so yeah. there are... How can they possibly moderate it all? It's yeah. Yeah. overwhelming. Many hundreds of millions of messages per day. And then it's all, each one is a judgment call. Mm -hmm. um, and those content moderators actually see such disturbing content that the companies give them free counseling, trauma oh. counseling. Oh, I never knew that. That's amazing. Oh my yeah. God. So you've read some of the crazy things that get onto Facebook or Twitter. Imagine the things that get moderated off. Yeah. You yeah. Know, oh my terrorists heading people oh. and all kinds of things like that. Things that I am not going to say on the radio that human beings do to one another and then post online or live tweet or live stream that no one should ever do, let alone broadcast to the world. Yes, content moderation is going to be an important part of the picture, but we can't rely on it to do everything. The question I have about, and Rogers has about content moderation, is who is the arbiter? Who is the one making these decisions? Should it be government? Right now, it's what I'm calling vigilante policing. Every company decides for themselves the way that they want to police the internet, and there is no level playing field. It's just all upon the whim of the CEO, how they decide who to leave in, who to censor, and who to dispute. I'm going to come forward with what's going to sound like a conservative viewpoint. If I invite people over to my house for dinner, it's my choice to say, take your shoes off when you enter my house, or it's my choice to say, we're going to have a silent grace before we, and you can choose whether you want to walk into my house and have dinner with me. That's up to you. I'm not forcing you to do that. But if you are on my turf, I get to set the rule. And if I own a department store, I can say, you can't walk in here without having a shirt on or without having shoes on. And if you're using my social media platform, I can say we don't allow things that are violent or that urge violence against another human being. We don't allow anything depicting or promoting animal cruelty. And I can write up a list of things that I say are okay and not okay. And if you're gonna use my platform, then you get to follow my rules. Now, 
there's a real interesting social twist to this. Once something has become a necessity of modern life, you can't be a full citizen without having a telephone or without having a car or a means of getting around the city, whatever. Then it enters the public sphere and it really needs public regulation and some public requirements. So if we have decided that it's appropriate that certain government entities do most or all of their communication via Facebook or Twitter, well, that means that in order to be a fully functioning citizen, I need to have a Facebook or Twitter account. Now that's a whole different ballgame and the government should be regulating it and should be setting minimum standards and enforcing those standards. Let me throw out something on the other end. In the Uganda elections recently, they blocked all social media. So they suspended all accounts and everyone's access before these elections. They blocked all social media, all virtual private networks, all app stores and YouTube. They suspended all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, Skype, Zoom, and Teams, and a whole lot more. And not only that, you couldn't even get to the app store. They disabled the app store. So it feels to me like many of us want to do that to groups that might unwittingly be caught up in this conversation about violence. And I would use Black Lives Matter as an example. I think there are groups out there that do want to post stuff that some of us might find objectionable and some of us might find admirable. So I think it's not just the technical side of the arbitration, which is one issue, but the other is who makes that judgment call? What does that rubric look like? And who has the power to turn things on and turn things off? Because that information is like a spigot. Yeah. Can I comment on first Barry's statements about being in my private living room? The problem I see with that is that our entire internet information structure is privatized. And instead of being like the public square, which we no longer have, it's more like a mall where you walk into a mall and you have to follow the rules of the management. And I totally understand where you're coming from, Doug. The government is not the answer either because the government can do things just like they did in Uganda. So according to Rogers, neither the government nor private enterprise are the answer to the question, who is the one making the decisions? And, and that is why he has come up with this idea of an arbitration independent review. And this is where I have a question about that too. I want you to come back in, Barry, and, and talk more about your ideas because we do see this now as more of a public square. And when we are using the advertising model, which just tries to glue the eyes onto over-dramatized, over-exaggerated, extremist kind of stuff to get eyes glued for profit's sake, then we get the wrong messages out there. And so it's not just a question of private versus public. It's a question of what model are you using? Are you using the Madison Avenue model, which is what's being used now, in order to determine who to put on, who to allow on the internet. But also, 
it just seems to me that having an independent list of people to do the reviews, and he felt that they needed to be trained people, that they needed to come from different political parts of the spectrum, that they needed to be different demographics into different careers. And to me, that seems to be a, a good compromise between private and public, because I see both your points. This is Doug again. Let me just throw one other thing out. One of the ideas behind free speech is that you make better decisions by being exposed to information you disagree with. So one of the problems with most platforms is that most of these platforms operate like a funnel, not like a plate. So they feed you more information that's more like what you already believe, and it doesn't give you choices. So an example would be having content that you can only get by reading the opposite view first, meaning that anybody who wanted to access free thinking information and make that requires you to make a decision or take a position in order to access the content you want, you have to read something that's the opposite first, something in the middle second, and then last you get to the content that you actually agree with. That's interesting. And someone at least making sure that that, that content is all accurate. There's so much stuff around that's just complete fantasy, like yeah. the election was stolen, which apparently half the country believes. Right. It sounds like the independent review arbiters are just sort of like what Barry was talking about, content moderation sort of on steroids. Is that what it is, more or In less? In the article, he said that those complaints would only concern account holders who had many, many followers, the right. people, oh, okay. the, the Donald Trumps and the major stars, because as you can imagine, otherwise there would just be an overwhelming crush yeah. of messages to arbitrate. When you look at someone like our former president who might issue 20 or 30 outrageous tweets per day, and then he has other people amplifying him people in the news media or big stars or corporate leaders or whatever. So you could easily see this arbitration panel getting hundreds and hundreds yes. of messages to arbitrate per day. And they're saying, well, we'll take up to three days to reach a decision on each one. By the time that they get around to it, all of those messages have become viral. All of them have been read by 50 million people. Yeah. And yeah. they've had whatever impact they're going to have on public opinion. So I think, you know, it's a lovely idea and it, it would have no effect on anything. You think um, it's unworkable? <laughs> I think it's utterly and completely unworkable. Uh -huh. Now, to, to Doug's point about what happened in Uganda, I think there's a big difference between the government deciding that there should be speed limits on the streets and there should be some stop signs and stoplights and the government taking away everybody's cars. We, as a society, even as freedom-loving as we are, accept that there ought to be some limits. There should be speed limits and stop signs and stoplights, and we have learned to trust the government to put those in place and maintain them and whatnot. And we argue about them from time to time. We say, get rid of the darn stop sign at the corner of this and that street. <laughs> but there is public input into that. So I believe that there is a proper place for government involvement. And to Ruth's point about the public square versus the marketplace for information ecosystem, 
I would love to see the core social media platforms or functions be regulated public utilities, like our electric companies and water companies. We realize that these are very important functions that everyone in the country should have access to them, that there are health and safety implications to providing these services. They need to be provided properly, not just in a fly-by-night way. And so it's appropriate to have some government regulation, but the government doesn't run them. The government sets the standards for them and enforces the standards. I think that would make a lot of sense. But I also think that uh, like with electricity or with cars, the marketplace pushes us to use more and more and more of everything because they can sell us more and more. And using more and more, bigger cars, bigger houses, more electricity, more social media doesn't make us happier. So as a society, we need to face a very difficult question, which is how much is enough? How many pictures of my wedding best man's dog do I need to see? How many updates do I need from my niece and nephew? How fast do I need to hear all the political news? Um, do I need to hear comments on comments on comments about what Senator so-and-so said today? Or can I really wait for it to filter down to the end of the week and then I hear a commentary show on Sunday that kind of boils it along with 10,000 other things down into a digestible mass. If we don't have any sense of enough, then we're just gonna continue to be sucked into this culture of more, 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 which makes us malleable and dupable, and it undermines our, our personal agency. So it feels to me like though there's two big things to think about as far as what we wanna regulate. I don't think that most people agree that having more hate speech and extremist material is a good thing. So that's one thing to regulate. And I think the thing you got at, Victoria, where does truthful information versus false information provide a context for good decision making about how you conduct yourself in reality? But a lot of the stuff out there that's an opinion is neither true nor false, mm -hmm. nor is it hate speech or extremist material. So it feels to me like the first thing is to move into the arena of risk. If people have hate speech and extremist material and they're advocating violence, that feels like an extreme bucket. That's the part that needs a lot of attention. And then a close second would be clearly false information. It could be medical information. But I'm reminded when we were having this conversation, uh, I like uh, TV courtroom dramas, the uh, prosecutor or the defense attorney will always say something like, isn't it true you did so-and-so and so-and-so? And the judge says, you can't ask that question. And then looks at the jury and says, okay, pretend like he did, she didn't this say that. Yeah. Well, he or she did say that and they did hear it. They can't unhear it. And it feels to me like in our society, we have a lot of information that is just that. It isn't information, it's a plot to change someone's mind. And my sense is that most people don't make decisions or act based on what they think. They make decisions and act based on what they feel. And I think that a lot of this information is designed to go straight to the amygdala and <laughs> pump you up. You know, it, it, it's not something that activates the cerebellum and makes you think clearly. It makes you mad um, and it makes you act quickly, not slowly. So I don't know how to help that part of human nature, but it feels like 
while we're trying to fix this and think about it, hate speech and extremist material is the place to start. But I'll just point out there's an example of a woman who could not post on Facebook. Her child, black woman, her child was called the N-word by someone, and she couldn't post that on Facebook because Facebook's bots wouldn't let her post the information. Mm -hmm. So whether we, we decide what's right or wrong or whether some bot decides what's right or wrong, it's never going to fit every case. It's never going to fit every situation, every circumstance. No, I agree. It's never going to solve the, the problem entirely. You know, this whole notion of people wanting more and more and the addictive nature, I'd like to go into that a little bit because, you know, on top of the advertising model that we're dealing with on the internet, we have something new, relatively new, called surveillance capitalism. You know, and that is an engine out there that is really pushing to profile all of us and to take down into analytical um, algorithms our personalities, everything we click on, even our email. And the thing is that it was it was fine and dandy when they were just using it for advertising products and services, but political campaigns and governments have gotten involved in surveillance capitalism now. And I think that's what makes the internet so much more dangerous. And having read some of Christopher Wiley's book, who was the one who helped to start Cambridge Analytica, that group that I guess got taken down. They have a whole history of profiling millions and millions of people doing psychological profiles and then going right for that psychiatric weakness, knowing everybody's profile, knowing everybody's weaknesses, knowing everything that triggers people to think in terms of conspiracy. And they use that the Trump campaign gave them $5 million and the Ted Cruz campaign gave them $5 million as well. And I also read that John Bolton's PAC paid them $1 million to explore how to increase militarism in American youth. So this is some really malicious stuff that's going on and is leveraging our individual psychologies in, in this gigantic way and how to gain control over that. I mean, um, Doug, you're talking about hate speech and violence and all of that, but I'm wondering about the process itself, not the content as much as how do we get a hold of these malicious mechanisms that are out there to trap us into hate speech and trap us into fear and scapegoating and violence? Before the violence even occurs, there's something out there that's putting us into these silos that generate fear and overreaction. It sounds to me like it would have to be government regulation again. You are not allowed to collect these data. I guess the Cambridge Analytica folks were giving the, these campaigns lists of all the people they should address certain sorts of emails or campaign videos or whatever to these people in order to, in other words, these people are likely to vote for you. Mm -hmm. So play on their fears of immigrants or whatever it might be to get them to vote for Donald Trump. Is that what they did with all these? Yes. And on top of that, they were able to buy from Facebook 
all of these personality profiles, Facebook filed a patent in 2012 on determining user personality characteristics from social networking system communications and characteristics. They had a patent on profiling people's personalities and they sold these profiles to Cambridge Analytica. Now, to me, that should be illegal. Right. The, the point of all that is what they call micro-targeting of advertisements. So a campaign that is exploiting that tactic might make 250 campaign ads. And they send each one of those 250 campaign ads to a different group of social media profiles. The one that you get is most likely to exploit one of your personality traits to <laughs> so hook you with its message. Exactly. Um, but this connects with the point I made early in, in our discussion that this is the, the farthest reaches of what's been happening over the past hundred years in advertising in general, which is learning how to exploit the traits in human beings that work really well face to face, but don't work really well when we're distant from one another. And yeah. I want to go back to, to Doug's points about hate speech and violence. I really appreciated everything you said there, Doug. And I have one wild proposal to deal with one sliver of that. Um, I call it a put up or shut up law, which basically prohibits publicly accusing someone of a crime without having delivered to the courthouse door your stack of evidence that they actually committed that crime. So I think it's insanely toxic for someone to be able to say, this person committed fraud and say it 10,000 times over every social media channel possible and never be able to be shut up even when you have no evidence that this person committed that fraud or murder or whatever, child sex ring in the basement of a pizza parlor. <laughs> obviously that wouldn't address all of the issues, Doug, that you were raising. There are lots of things that people put out that are hateful and violent that aren't accusing someone of a crime. But at least that would cut off some of the most egregious stuff. Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not a lawyer and I have not studied the slander and libel laws. So I don't really know what the legal situation is now and what might be some of the problems with a law like that. But in concept, I like the idea. Isn't that basically the law that applies to publishers, like people who put out books or newspapers or magazines? They can't accuse someone without evidence or they can be sued, right? Liability, this is the Defamation. big issue in the European Union and other places, is will we hold social networking platforms liable for negative consequences that come with people posting mainly the terroristic threatening type stuff or inducing violence, but also when someone's life gets ruined because lies were promoted and shared and told, you know, someone might have a negative health outcome, someone might have a negative legal outcome, whatever. You are listening to Truth to Power on WFMP 106.5 FM, your all-volunteer community radio station broadcasting from downtown Louisville. Catch us live streaming, check out our schedule of programs, or listen to archived earlier broadcasts by going to our website, forwardradio.org. This is Ruth Newman here with Doug Lowry, co-hosts, and we're sitting in for Justin Mogg. We are joined today by Barry Zelf and 
Victoria Strange as we attempt to hack through the dense jungle of social media with its sometimes extreme speech, misinformation, and even lies that can lead people to believe and do wrongful and outrageous things. So let's pick up where we left off with Doug Lowry. I think the bigger question for me is how do people of good faith and people of goodwill use this same information, what we know about human beings alone in small groups and all of us all together to make human beings better? There used to be a world, I think a lot of us were raised in a world where we talked about the common good. We talked about making the world a better place for all people and even the more than human things. And I think there's a lot of stuff out there about big data and its evil consequences, but there's not a lot of conversation about how would a group of people who are committed to good, to raising human consciousness, to raising kindness and mercy, to solving big problems, how do those people use big data and social media to achieve good ends? You know, we're familiar with the nefarious ends, but what about the good ends? For me, the answer so far has been to get off of social media. I discontinued my Facebook account over a year ago, and I want to use that time to connect with actual people in real space. Of course, the pandemic makes that hard, but to me, the way that people of goodwill reach out to one another and form social bonds and communities is by you know, walking across the street and, and offering each other produce from our garden or noticing that somebody's limping and asking if, if I can carry their package. I feel that back to the discussion of more not always being better, the fewer, deeper relationships can be very, very rewarding compared to the many, many shallow relationships which social media encourages us to form and maintain. I think, to your point, Doug, (laughs) we can practice self-restraint. Even when I was on Facebook, among my few hundred friends, there was very little ranting and raving and a lot of lovely sharing because of the communities of people that I've been involved with over the years. But, you know, by having my lovely relationships with my lovely friends, I'm not necessarily softening the hearts of anybody who who's into violent overthrow of this or that. This sounds like a little bit of a jump, but in the December 2019 issue of the Atlantic Monthly, um, there was an article entitled Why It Feels Like Everything is Going Haywire about social media. It's by Jonathan Haidt and Tobias Rose Stockwell. And one of the uh, interesting quotations in this article from somebody who was deeply involved in the engineering of social media. He was one of the engineers who created the retweet button for Twitter. He admitted that he now regrets doing so. And as he watched the first Twitter mobs use his new tool, he thought to himself, quote, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. And, (laughs) And the problem with these tools like social media is that they offer us tremendous power, and many of us do not exercise the responsibility to use that tremendous power wisely. It's not good to put SUVs in the hands of six-year-olds or to leave cans of gasoline in a house full of 10-year-olds. You know, It's just not smart. And it doesn't mean that 10-year-olds are evil or that human beings are evil. It means that we each have limits to our exercise of of responsibility 
And there are powers that are too great for any one of us to responsibly exercise. And as a group, as a society, I don't feel like we're responsible enough to deal with the power that's already at our fingertips. Yeah, and that's true of, you know, the nuclear weapon. And that's what we did at the end of World War II, is we acted like a four-year-old with nuclear weapons against Japan. I like your concept, Doug, of trying to see how we can use this powerful tool for consciousness raising. And I also really like what you said, uh, Barry, about we have got to start working locally. I'm reminded of the phrase, think globally, act locally. You know, I, I really believe that the most authentic relationships are the ones where you're physically, you know, across from people. But I'm wondering if, are we possibly in some kind of a transition period where we're trying to sort all this out and where we've got this incredibly powerful tool that, as Doug says, could be used to raise our a global our global consciousness because we certainly need that. I don't know, but I think there are probably people using it for that already. I mean, there are lots of wonderful organizations that have been able to get followers and, and activists, uh, like you just had the grassroots radio conference virtually, right, Ruth? And there were people yeah. from all over the world. All over. And, you know, I think about groups like climate change activists and even people with medical issues, you know, groups of people that are suffering from the same problems online and can discuss these things online, like a lot of the people with these long haul symptoms from COVID. And then I think about how we've all been so dependent on what we're doing right now, which is having this discussion, the internet, during this pandemic. It would have been so much harder, I think, for many, many people to just hunker down and not even just just have the telephone. And at least I can see your faces, everybody, even though we're not in the same room. Sort of gives you the sense that you're with your friends. At the beginning of this wonderful book, which I, I got years ago at a media reform conference, Digital Disconnect by Robert McChesney, who's um, professor at the University of Illinois and has just been involved in media reform for years. And it's called, the subtitle is How Capitalism is Turning the Internet Against Democracy. And I'm sorry that I haven't read the entire book and I read about a third of it years ago when I got it because he wrote it, he copyrighted this in 2013. So there's been a lot that's happened since then. He opens the book with this you know, kind of dichotomy. There are the people who think the internet is going to bring us all together and be this wonderful democratizing force. And then there are the people who think, uh-uh, this is going to get out of hand. This is, and right now it sort of seems like the naysayers might have been right, but the celebrants might have been right as well. It's like this sort of yin and yang, this pull, push and pull. It seems like an incredibly complex issue to tackle. I think a lot of these issues get addressed in Greek mythology. You know, we're all familiar with the story of Icarus. He has these waxy wings. His father says, don't fly too high. And of course he does fly too high and then he plummets, you know, to a a drowning end. And there's the uh, story of Arachna, you know, who basically is a braggart weaver, you know, and she gets turned into a spider because she's made the, the goddess jealous. So that's one end of the spectrum. 
but we have great power at our disposal as human beings. And it feels to me like a big part of the conversation is how do we make people more curious and less afraid? How do we make people see that the world is not just a place of scarcity and fear, but is also a place of abundance and connection? A uh, little bit of Louisville trivia. I think we were one of the first communities to have sort of an online version of MySpace that was called Mojo. So it did sort of serve that. I think it ended up being a lot of uh, dating and hookup-y type things, but it was a way for local people to connect more like Cheers, uh, more like a neighborhood bar and less like a giant social media platform. So I do think there are ways that we can create neighborhoods. And I'm with Barry, if it's a virtual connection that doesn't lead to a real connection, I'm not sure what value it holds. Um, but I do think we need to start thinking about how does my curiosity connect to yours? How do we know enough to know what's good and bad? You know, right now, a lot of this, we don't know what we don't know. And the world only gets more complex and we are less able to hold the hole in our heads. So we need a place where we can come together and talk about what's true and what's right and talk about how social media makes that better or makes that worse. There's not really a Sunday morning talk show that talks about that. I think part of getting to the kind of lovely society that you're describing, Doug, is to set different incentives for social media providers. Right now, the incentives are all financial. And in order to maximize financial returns, you're in some difficult water if you're also trying to maximize human well-being. Because if you think about it, the absolute worst thing for capitalism is if we were to all become enlightened beings. Because if we were enlightened beings, we'd realize we already have what we need and yeah. we wouldn't need to run out and buy a bunch of stuff. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't need to be more sexy. I wouldn't need to make people think I'm more powerful or more wealthy. And demand would dry up overnight for lots and lots <laughs> of things. So if we were to set up a set of incentives for maximizing human well-being with our social media, then we'd get a whole different design than if our goal is to maximize the financial returns for the investors. And we haven't done very well at doing that in our society. The organizations that presumably do that are religious congregations and charitable nonprofits. I mean, theoretically, the government works for the public benefit, but as we all know, it doesn't really work that way um, much of the time. It tends to benefit one group at the expense of others, I do believe that there's such a thing as good government and that we need to strive for it and that good government can actually meet the needs of its people and can be guided by its people rather than leading its people around by the nose. But I think our first step in the right direction might be to call BS to the whole narrative of the economy uberalis, you know, that if the economy is prospering, then everything gets better for everybody. Well, that's just nonsense. And it's especially nonsense when the economy prospering means five or six mega corporations doubling their profits in a year and making their owners even more vastly wealthy than they already are, while their low-level employees by the thousands don't have health care, don't have child care, don't have vacation days, you know, 
and now we're making things easier for the big corporations at the expense of their workers by incentivizing the gig economy. So if we can just say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, every time somebody tries to sell us that pitch, that all we need to do is make the economy good again, and then we're all going to prosper, that's going to be a tiny step in the right direction. Then the, the next step, as far as I'm concerned, is to say, what is the benefit to our society of having billionaires? I think there's zero benefit to our society of having billionaires. I don't think there's any benefit to having people who have over $100 million. That's still vast wealth. That still allows a person to have been rewarded very generously for their creativity and hard work. But if we cut the tops off of all of those uh, giant personal holdings and returned it back into the, the public coffers, the amount that we could improve the public well-being is just tremendous. And if the entrepreneurs who create these social media companies understood that there is no benefit to them getting richer than $100 million because it's all going to go to the public coffers, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't be so enamored of these socially destructive means of accelerating their wealth accumulation. But right now, it's just a game. Who can have the biggest stack of cash? And, oh, I, I'm on my way to getting more than Warren Buffett has. And, and maybe after that, I can get on my way to having more than Bill Gates has. And all that kind of nonsense. I really think that as a society, we need to disallow that kind of ludicrous accumulation of wealth and take that off the table as a motivating factor for the people who build these companies. Yeah, Yeah, the problem is the people with that wealth have so much control over our politics. You know, the, the, the dark money, the huge sums of money that get funneled in, even probably from overseas. So I wish that we, I mean, it seems like a good place to start would be taxation. <laughs> I remember when, when I was a kid, I think during the Eisenhower administration, when I was just a wee kid, the top tax rate was something like 90%. Correct. Yeah. So you didn't have this. I mean, I granted all of us baby boomers kind of grew up in this era in which Things were more even than they had been probably since the Gilded Age. And now we're in a new and even more intense Gilded Age, it seems to me. So there's some public policy that could address the huge gaps, you know, the huge wealth inequality that is, I think, at the root of a lot of this discontent and people going down these weird rabbit holes on the Internet because they have to find some kind of explanation for why, you know, they just can't believe in the government anymore because the government hasn't helped them or so they think. Mm -hmm. And if we can show that good government exists, Barry, to your point, it seems that might help solve some of this, you know, that, Hey, the government is actually working for me. Hey, it actually does matter who I vote for and I better get informed. I better figure out who's going to represent my interests best. Yeah. And taking that one step further, oh my gosh, this government that's led by somebody that I thought was the Antichrist is actually meeting my needs. That the people who were feeding me this line that he was the Antichrist probably weren't right and might not be talking in my best interest. Wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) It would be wonderful. 
Yeah, just the whole notion of how to incentivize people, not based on profit and power, but based on knowledge that everybody has the opportunity and the right to develop themselves to their fullest capacity. And that if we can just have that as, as our basis, then people would just naturally be in the right frame of mind to be lifting each other up and not tearing each other apart. Yeah, that just to me is an interesting thought is how to incentivize. And I don't know if we can do it with these top CEOs who only got to where they are because they know how to play that game of cutthroat capitalism. I just wonder if those kinds of incentives need to be developed from below, from all of us, just like, for example, normally I see on my Nextdoor app a lot of hateful stuff on there where people just bash each other for the same reason that you were saying, Barry, they don't see each other. They're just sitting there in their own individual selves and not seeing the other person. But then on the other hand, today and yesterday, there is a guy that his dog was hit by a car and the dog died. And I was just so amazed at the outpouring of feeling for this poor man whose dog was just killed by a car. It was just, it, it brought me to tears. There must've been hundreds of people who responded to his next door. And so I, I wish that we could talk more about how to incentivize not only the top people at the top of the political and the business spectrum, but also just local people, ordinary people in their daily lives, how to incentivize them to be the best that they can be and, and to know that they deserve to develop themselves to the best that they can develop themselves. Well, if you want to go to policy, you know, for me, healthcare, people have access to the basics. If they had basic healthcare, and everybody had a basic income, a lot of these issues, I think, would fade away. You know, and all you have to do is look at our list of metrics and then compare it to countries in the EU and other places around the world. You know, and in so many categories, the United States in general is so much further behind all these other countries in terms of happiness, residual wealth, health outcomes, educational outcomes, whatnot. And then you look at us, you know, compared to that, out of our 49 peer states, Kentucky is usually 47th, 48th, 49th, 50th. So the good news is whatever we try, we have a lot of room. You know, someone <laughs> could definitely tell if we worked on something, they could actually see if we could move the needle here because we have so many metrics that we don't do so well on. Right on, Doug. I completely agree with you. And I think the big challenge is that we don't have those things in the United States because one of our two major parties doesn't believe in the government improving people's lives. And the reason that they don't believe in government improving people's lives is that they don't believe in improving the lives of some people that they hate. They want to keep the disempowered disempowered and providing them with good health care and a universal basic income or even an uh, opportunity to have a decent education and a decent job where they get paid equally to other people doing the same job, that would upset their concept of what the social order ought to be. 
like the good old days in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. And when think, a lot of those people couldn't vote. That's another key part of this. Exactly. That's the reason for voter disenfranchisement now mm-hmm. and voter suppression. So, Doug, you used the word scarcity. Um, we need more curiosity in people and less fear. And the fear is driven by scarcity. And the opposite of scarcity is abundance. If we can possibly carry to our fellow citizens across the political spectrum the good news that there's actually enough to go around and that we don't need to have a permanent underclass. You don't need to be stepping on somebody else's back in order to be able to feed your children and pay the cable bill. We have a strong enough society that we can provide all of that for everybody. And we don't need to exclude groups of people. We don't need to disempower and disadvantage groups of people. And we certainly don't need to hate groups of people. That in fact, Ruth was moving the conversation in this direction. If we foster the full development of the talents and abilities of everyone across all demographics, then our economy is going to get more and more productive. We're going to be able to meet our needs more and more easily whether you're talking about medicine or personal care. Um, Many of us, as we age, we're going to need some personal assistance that doesn't need to be medically highly skilled, but just somebody else to help us get across the room without falling over, that sort of thing. There's so much good, honorable work that needs to be done. There's absolutely no excuse for us not to have good, remunerative work for everyone in the society and inviting everybody in as a source of talent and labor is the best way to make sure that everybody gets what they need. Mm-hmm. Very good. I really like that, Barry. So really the solutions are not so much how do we police the internet as they are, how do we really change our whole way that we relate to each other and starting maybe on both ends, the government end and the individual relationship end on how we view people who don't look like us. So this to me invites a whole nother conversation, which I would love to pursue. I hope that you guys will stick around for another session, maybe of Truth to Power, maybe another radio show. But unfortunately, I think we've come to the end of our time here today. One of the things that puts a smile on my face every morning when I get up is the fact that there are so many brilliant, kind, thoughtful, caring people who are working to make our society more healthy and more vibrant. And we hear so much about what's going wrong and the evil that's being done here and there. And it's for us to remember all the immense amount of good work that's being done every day. I know. I wish we would focus on that more sometimes. But when when you're in at least four gigantic crises at once, (laughs) you tend to just get, you know, hit with bad news every day, every minute of every day. Well, and also the whole model that they use generates fear because fear generates more consumption and more profit. I think it would be so wonderful to explore. And I don't know if Charles Booker's organization is doing this. Hood to the holler. I think the other thing that's encouraging is people who are black or brown or bronze have really stood in the fire 
for months and yeah. months and months and months now. So yeah. I think that says a lot. You know, there's a lot of courageous work. There's not only good quality work being done. There's a lot of courageous work that I don't think is going to go away. I don't think it's going to slither back into some uh, woodwork somewhere. I think it's here to stay. So I think that's encouraging. My dream is like spreading the word about the common good. You know, the common good. Let's come together. What's good for the factory line worker in Louisville is also good for the coal miner, what few of them are left, in eastern Kentucky. Let's get on the sustainable, renewable, you know, let's go down that road like we did after the Great Depression. I was so excited to see that Joe Biden, it's just an executive order, but he wants to create almost like a civilian conservation corps, which was what Franklin Roosevelt put in. We're, you know, yes, all these people who need work and we have so much work to do to transform this country to get on the path of renewable energy. You know, I just keep thinking that's such a no brainer. I don't understand why we didn't do it a long time ago because it, it would help everyone rich, poor, in between. Say, Ruth, if you want to do an an episode of Truth to Power about good things that are happening, about, you know, encouraging signs and wonderful work in progress, Uh I think that would be a great topic. And Yeah, that would be. You know, you get two or three different fields, people who can talk about great things that are happening in, I don't know, energy and transportation and about human fulfillment and wellness and agriculture and regenerative agriculture. There's just an enormous amount of amazing work going on. You're absolutely right, Barry. And that's what we need to fill ourselves with hope. Interesting that we should end our discussion on how to police the internet, actually endorsing an approach comparable to comments made on policing the city. That is, putting greater emphasis on community building strategies rather than on apprehension and punishment strategies. Something to think about. Thank you to my co-host, Doug Lowry. Happy to be uh, here. And guests, Victoria Strange and Barry Zelf. And remember, if you want to keep community conversations like this one on the air, support WFMP 106.5 FM by going to our website, forwardradio.org and clicking on the donate button. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Truth to Power. I'm Ruth Newman wishing you a safe and secure new year.